Hey, welcome back to Music Madness. I'm your host, Kent, with the fourth episode in our Dead Too Early bracket. We're setting up a bracket of 32 artists who died way too young. These artists were in their prime and died from a number of different reasons. We're in the final week of what I'm calling our play-ins, where we have two artists competing for the five through eight seeds in our bracket, so we can spend a little bit more time with them before they get eliminated in the first round, potentially, right? Like, some of these may knock some people off. In episode one, we talked through artists who died too early from health reasons. We talked uh, through with Big Pun, ending up our number eight seed. Cass Elliott was our seven seed. Amy Winehouse moved into the six seed. And Karen Carpenter was at the five seed. In episode two, we talked through artists who died from freak accidents. And we have Jim Croce at the eight seed. We have Dwayne Allman from the Allman Brothers Band at the five seed. We have Hank Williams in at the six seed and Aaliyah at the seven seed. Tonight, we're going to reveal what happened in the third bracket but just remember of who we had going up against it. First, we had rapper Mac Miller against Disco Pretty Boy, Andy Gibb, for the eighth seed. Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon was up against Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols for the seventh seed. Bradley Knoll from Sublime uh, faced off against rapper Juice World for the sixth seed. And Michael Hutchins from In Excess took on Janis Joplin for the fifth seed. So some crazy results uh, in there, but here's what we came up with from the voting this week. At the eight seed, Mac Miller defeats Andy Gibb. At the seven seed, Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon defeats Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols. For our six seed, Bradley Knoll from Sublime knocks off Juice World. And at the five seed, uh, I, I was right, I got a lot of heat for this. Janice Joplin knocks off Michael Hutchins from in excess and now on to our final group um this one's gonna be tough to get through uh, I'll say it again if you're struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide please seek help I've made sure to attach the link to a suicide hotline in the description because what we're gonna go through today is the final group which is called the violent death group this includes artists who are murdered or killed themselves by a suicide this is a tough group for anyone and is really trying to celebrate these artists for the music that they created and not what they did either to themselves or um, were do was done to them. So, again, any problems, please check out the hotline and, uh, and look for some help there. Our first contestant for the eight seed is Kirsnik Kari Ball, who is better known by his stage name of Takeoff from the rap group Migos. Migos is a rap group from Georgia that was made up of Quavo, Takeoff, and Offset. Quavo is Takeoff's uncle. Offset is more or less a friend of his, but he lived in the same house, and he was really a classmate. Even though Quavo was uh, Takeoff's uncle, he was only a year older than the other two, so all three were raised like brothers by Quavo's mom. They started producing music in their mother's basement in, like, 08, and their name Migos comes from the term the three amigos because the three of them were so close they were almost like brothers. Like we've talked about a lot of uh, rap artists, they started out by releasing mixtapes independently. Their first one was called Jug Season in 2011. It got some local attention and really set up their future success. In 2013, they released their f uh, follow-up YRN, which stood for Run Young, Rich, 
N words. Uh, the mixtape included the single Versace, which was their first song that charted. The song got the attention of mega raps rapper Drake, and he joined them on a remix, and it really blew up. The song was included on the best of 2013 lists by XXL, Complex, Spin, Pitchfork, Rolling Stones, and pretty much every single music magazine out there. The Migos had really just hit it huge. They were still independent at that time, which is tough to do. They continued to put out other mixtapes. Looking through the list of their collaborators, though, it's insane. It's like everyone who's ever made a rap song has worked with the Migos. They had Chris Brown, Young Thug, Lil Wayne, Nas, and others on their tracks. Around this time, they signed with Atlantic Records, but they quickly backed out of the deal and decided to stay independent because they were able to make more money on their own. In 2015, they hit it big again with the song Look at My Dab. If you remember around this time, um, every kid in the world was dabbing by putting their face in their elbow and throwing their other hand up in the other direction. It came from the video for this song. It was everywhere on social media. Football players would do it as their tight end celebration. I remember Cam Newton doing it all the time. It was in Fortnite. It was everywhere, but it really came from the song from the Migos. In 2016, they signed with Kanye West's management company to represent them. They remained independent from a label perspective, but he was managing them. This year, they really hit it big when they released the album Culture, which contained the song Bad and Bougie, which hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and has been certified quadruple platinum. The album debuted at number one. Takeoff was in the music video for the song, but he didn't actually perform on it because he was busy working on an album of his own. They continued to collaborate with everyone on the planet. They were on a Katy Perry song. They worked with Lil Uzi Vert, Lil Yachty, Cardi B, Nicki Minaj, Pharrell Williams, Metro Boomin, Travis Scott. It's just a crazy list of who's who. They were on all of those songs. Their song Stir Fry was used uh, as the theme song for the 2018 NBA All-Star Game. And in 2018, Migos uh tied a record that the Beatles had set 50 years earlier where they had 14 songs on the Hot 100 at one time, which is still a record that they've now tied. In 2022, it was rumored that the group had broken up. Offset supposedly had slept with Quavo's girlfriend, and this led to a rift between the three. Takeoff and Quavo released a separate album with just the two of them in October of 2022, which would be the last thing Takeoff produced. In November of 2022... Takeoff and Quavo were partying at a bowling alley in Houston, Texas. And around one in the morning, a group of 40 people were standing outside of the party. Around two in the morning, a fight broke out. Um, and some of the people that were outside and two guns were drawn and shots were fired. Takeoff was actually hit by a stray bullet and killed on the scene. The two men who fired the shots were arrested and one was charged with his murder and served five years in jail. He had been 28 when he died. Officially, there's been no announcement about the future of the Migos, but they haven't produced anything since his death uh, late last year. Super sad. His opponent couldn't be more different. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born in 1756 in Salzburg, Austria, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. His father was a violin player who actually wrote a few violin textbooks at the time. His older sister, Maria Anna, who went by the name Nanarell, which seems like a bad choice, started lessons on the keyboard with her dad when she was seven and a good old Wolfie was only three. 
he'd sit there and watch, and it was obvious that he was learning faster than she was. He'd be able to just pluck things out, and they sounded good. Uh, we've all heard the story, but at age five, he started putting together notes, and his father would write them down, and this was his first musical composition. There were three pieces recorded in his father's notebook that were songs supposedly written by um, Wolfgang. His father was really his only musical teacher, and it became obvious that soon after that Mozart's talent was way beyond his father's. I read a story that Wolfgang put together a piece that included a violin part. His dad had never taught him how to write a violin part, but he figured it out on his own. He then moved from trying to teach him to trying to magnify his son's talent. In 1762, at only age six, his parents took him on a tour of the great cities of Europe. His sister and he performed as child protégés in Munich, Paris, London, The Hague, Amsterdam, Utrecht, and a bunch of other cities. While in London, he met Bach, who he visited with and learned about composing. At age 11, his father took him on a tour of Italy and exposed him to opera. He toured Bologna, Rome, Milan, and other Italian cities. His dad was trying to get him a royal commission where he could just be on the payroll and make music for some uh, royal royalty, but it didn't really materialize. And the exposure was great for young Wolfie, but he didn't get what he was looking for. He created a solo named Excelente while there, which was his first solo piece. The crazy thing about Mozart was he was able to do all sorts of different things. He was able to do piano, violin, opera. He was able to pretty much jump from genre to genre at the time and create music in all of them. In 1773, he was hired by the ruling family of Salzburg as their court musician. He was only 17. In 1775, he got really into the violin, like I was saying, and composed five violin concertos, five of which became staples of his. Numbers 216, 218, and 219. It's really hard to talk about music when a group of his songs don't have a name. They just have a number. <laughs> so it's look them up, right? You'll, you'll probably recognize some of the songs. Anyhow, these five violin concertos are the only five he ever produced. He then pivoted to the piano and did concerto number 21, which is credited as like his breakout quote unquote album. But he hated Salzburg. He wanted to leave and he got his wish in 1777 when the court shut down the concert hall. He moved around Paris, went to Mannheim, he lived in Munich, he started selling off his stuff because he just couldn't afford it, but his mom actually died because he couldn't afford to pay for a doctor when she got sick. He ended up getting another job back in Salzburg, largely because of his dad, working for an archbishop named Collierdo, but he wasn't happy. Um, in 1781, at 25, Collierdo asked uh, Mozart to accompany him on a trip to Vienna, and Mozart really wanted to show off to the newly ascended Holy Roman Empire, and Collierdo really wanted to show him off as well. Um, he wanted to become the emperor's court musician. The emperor introduced him to the Venetian nobility, all of who wanted to commission him, but Collierdo wouldn't let him do it. He was pretty upset. He tried to quit, but the archbishop wouldn't let him. His dad got really mad and intervened. Eventually he did, and this led to a big rift with his dad, and Mozart really starting to set out on his own and do his own thing. While in Vienna, Mozart got married to Constanze Weber, who was the sister of a woman he had been in love with earlier on named Eliza. They had six kids, but only two of them survived to adulthood, Carl and Franz. Um, at this point, he was kind of an independent contractor. He was doing like underground stuff. 
He composed and put together pieces. He would book concerts in weird places like restaurants or apartment buildings. Sounds kind of like an underground rap club, you know, like you just got to know where it is and you've got to be there. Um, but he was really successful at this time and he was able to put, he was able, this was his pre-earning time. He was able to put together a, a really nice life for he and his family. In 1786 to 1787, he went back to opera and collaborated with a lyricist named Lorenzo da Ponte to create The Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni, which are his two best known works and are still performed to this day. It was after this that he finally got his wish and became the court musician for the Holy Roman Emperor, Joseph II. However, soon afterwards, war broke out with the Turks and the position was eliminated uh, due to costs because wars are expensive. His income fell significantly and they had to move out of their estate and start selling stuff off. In 1791, Mozart's last year, he produced some of his best stuff. The opera, The Magic Flute, is considered his best work. Um, another piece called Requiem, Requiem K626, is probably his best-known piano piece. Check it out. Everybody's heard this thing. However, while in Prague for the premiere of one of his operas, he became incredibly ill. He was commissioned to produce music for Austrian Emperor Leopold II's coronation, but he continued to get sicker and sicker. He would suffer from swelling, pain, vomiting. I'm probably reaching a bit, putting him in this bracket as we're not totally sure how he died, but there's a very prominent rumor that he was murdered by a rival named Antonio Saleri. Saleri was the court musician for Leopold II, and he was supposedly super jealous of Mozart and how Leopold really liked his stuff. Later in life, Saleri would claim to have caused the death of Mozart, and there were a number of stories written about it. Uh, Mozart's son said that his body stayed puffy and soft after his death, which was evidence of poisoning versus natural causes. However, he was buried in a common grave, which was the practice at the time, so we'll never really know what happened, but I'm, I'm going with murder. As uh, Monty Python says, and now for something completely different. At the seven seed, we have artist T Tim Bergling, better known by his stage name, Avicii. Avicii was an electronic DJ and produced producer who is one of the very first people to bring electronic dance music or EDM into the mainstream. Often people mock like techno or like just really heavy dance music or dubstep or any of that kind of music, but he really brought it into the mainstream and opened doors for a lot of artists today who are putting out music in the mainstream. Avicii's our first Swedish contestant on the list. He was born in Stockholm. His mother was a small-time actor, and he had three siblings. His brother, Anton Korberg, is actually an actor and had minor vo voice parts in movies like How to Train Your Dragon and Hop. He, one of his other brothers was also a DJ, and this inspired Avicii to start playing around with music, and he began making music when he was 16. By the time he was 18, he'd signed to a small EDM label in Sweden, and then he just really started just pumping out music. In 2010, he started using the name Avicii, which he said it's um, he'd used his own name on MySpace, and he wanted to rebrand after that platform kind of faded away. He said that uh, he'd read Avicii meant the lowest level of hell in Hindi, which I had to look it up. It, it kind of does, but it means something different than hell. So we'll go with it. This year, he also had a his first hit that got him signed by EMI Records. 
Um, in 2011, he released a song called Levels, and it was his first like huge hit. It went to number one in almost every country in Europe. He then collaborated with another DJ named da- David Goyeta on a song called Sunshine, which was nominated for a Grammy for Best Dance Recording. He put out an- other songs with that year with Madonna, Lenny Kravitz, and others that really built a global fan base instead of just in Europe. In 2012, he performed at Lollapalooza in Chicago, and he became the first DJ to perform at Radio City Music Hall and was nominated for another Grammy for Levels. In 2013, he put out an album that really was his crossover into the mainstream. The album was called True, and on this album, Avicii brought sounds of country, bluegrass, and southern stylings. No one had really ever done that in EDM before. His core fan base kind of hated it. Um, he performed at like a big festival in Europe and got like booed. Um, but it brought him in a whole new group of fans from the mainstream. However, the song Wake Me Up featured vocals by L.O. Black and it exploded. It charted in 20 countries, reached number one in 10. If you've ever been to a sporting event since 2013, you've heard this song. The second major hit off the album was Hey Brother which featured country singer Dan Tyminski on the vocals. The album went platinum in the U.S. It reached number five on the Hot 200 list. But this really just increased demands on his time. He collaborated with Madonna to make a song for her. He collaborated with Carlos Santana and Wyclef for the 2014 World Cup anthem. He worked with Chris Martin from Cold Prolay, and he co-wrote the song A Sky Full of Stars from their album Ghost Stories. That song went huge. He wrote and played the piano on that song, which usually just assume Chris Martin's the one playing the piano. In 2014, he announced that he had 70 songs ready to pick for from for his next album, which was titled Stories. The song Waiting for Love was probably the biggest hit off the album, but he collaborated with a lot of vocalists, including Zach Brown from the Zach Brown Band, Wycliffe, and a bunch of others. However, we got our first glimpse that year that everything wasn't right. On his 25th birthday, which was in September, he canceled all of his remaining shows for 2014 because of health reasons. It's crazy because it took him almost a year to get stories out the door because of these health reasons. In 2011, he'd had acute pancreatitis due to alcohol consumption. He had surgery and was prescribed Oxycontin and Vicodin as painkillers, and he became addicted. In 2014, he had surgery to remove his appendix and gallbladder. And in 2015, he entered rehab to get off Oxy. In March of 2016, he announced that he was retiring from touring completely because of health reasons. He said that the stress and pressure from his management team and fans was causing him to feel incredibly depressed. He couldn't stand the hate when he'd had to cancel a show because of his addiction. He'd get a lot of hate mail. It would drive him back to the drugs that he was trying to get off of, which made it a real circular problem. He fired his manager that year because he felt they were constantly pressuring him to be on tour because that's where they made all the money. His final show was in Ibiza, uh, in August of 2016. Uh, during all of this time, he was still making music, though. That's a, just This guy was always mu- making music. He collaborated with Coldplay again and helped them write and produce the song Him for the Weekend, which featured Beyonce. In 2017, he put out a short EP, Avicii, 
1901, which was the last album he actually put out when he was alive. It featured the song, single Lonely Together, which had singer Rita, Rita Ora, and he said it was the first part of a three-part album he was working on. However, while he was on vacation in Muscat, Oman, he was discovered dead in his hotel room. He was only 28. I know there's a lot of talk of the 27 Club, but man, I feel like 28 is putting in a pretty tough challenge here because I feel like I've been saying 28 a lot uh, in this podcast. He had committed suicide by breaking a glass and cutting his wrists. His addiction, anxiety, and depression had finally caught up with him. After his death, his production company found that he had over 200 unreleased songs in various forms of production. Uh, His final album, which was titled Tim, was assembled from that. The biggest single off of that was the the song Heaven, which featured his friend Chris Martin from Coldplay singing vocals. So sadly, I feel like we're talking quite a bit about this subgenre of music, which is like the emo rap genre that really exploded in the 2010s. But Avicii's opponent is Jasse Onfri, who is better known by his stage name of Extension or Triple X Tension. He was born in Florida in 1988, which is also insane, and had an extremely rough upbringing. His father was a Rastafarian and was largely absent from his life. He and his mother had a really strained relationship and spent a lot of his time living with his grandmother. He was a rather violent kid, so his mom would often just disappear. She couldn't deal with him, um, which would cause him to act out, to get her attention back, and bring her back. Even at age six, um, someone tried to attack his mom, and he stabbed him. Um, This got him placed in a youth program housing before his grandmother took him in. As a teenager, he claimed he had found his uncle's dead body after he had committed suicide. He said that he had been sexually abused as a child and had witnessed somebody else being raped and tortured. According to his mother, who is a less reliable uh, source, Humphrey had been beaten by his father until he eventually got arrested, sent to jail, and deported. Um, Humphrey got kicked out of almost every school he attended because he was a violent bully. While in school, he was diagnosed as bipolar, which contributed to his behavior. He was incarcerated numerous times as a kid and as an adult because of violent outbursts. He spent time in jail for armed robbery, assault, home invasion, and possession of drugs. Because of all of this, you can understand that this man was dealing with some depression. He wasn't happy, and he lived an incredibly trauma-filled life. These themes came through his music extremely clearly. He would often open up his albums with kind of an introduction that you were going to see inside of his mind to understand what he was thinking. In 2013, he met another aspiring rapper rapper in Juvenile Hall, and the two of them decided to start rapping together. They would start uploading a few songs here and there on SoundCloud, and in 2015, he put out a song called Look At Me, The song slowly started building a following and charting on the Billboard Hot 100 in 2017, and it got up to number 34. And this was largely because there was a controversy because Drake, uh, the big rapper, was accused of stealing his beats from Look At Me for Drake's song called KMT. Because of this, they really started checking out his song to see what it really sounded like. It was also around this time when he got arrested for probably his most heinous crime. Um, he had started dating a woman and he would beat her. Then she became pregnant 
and he would still beat her. Um, when she attempted to report it, he supposedly imprisoned her in her home, in their home. He was accused and arrested for false imprisonment, assault, and aggravated battery. He was still on trial for these crimes even after the time of his death. His girlfriend later wrote a letter trying to get the charges dropped, but because they were so bad, um, they couldn't get them all dropped. They had broken up, and he'd apologized and gone into some therapy and rehab, but the charges were so severe that they remained until they were dropped after his death. Even in spite of this, in 27, when um, Look At Me was starting to chart, it was a crazy year for him musically. Interestingly, his music styles were all over the place. He could play guitar, piano. He was a rapper. He could sing. Every single album he put together had a vastly different side style. One was hardcore rap. One was really alternative and was really just him and a guitar. Another one had almost deathcore to it where he was like screaming, like a, a screamo type of uh, album. Because of the attention of Drake, he got signed by Empire Distribution. He put together a mixtape of things he'd previously posted on SoundCloud and titled it Revenge and announced a big tour to support it. In the same year, he released his first full album, number, which was numbered 17. He was only 19 at this point. The songs off this album garnered almost zero radio play, but the album debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 200. If you remember the formula for the Billboard list, it's a combination of streaming, radio play, and album sales. You can imagine how much this album must have been streamed if it had zero radio play. Revenge, Everyone Dies in Their Nightmares, and Jocelyn Flowers all have over a billion streams on Spotify. Jocelyn Flores has almost two billion streams on its own. The sound of this album surprised me after listening to Look At Me. It's totally different. Off that album, seven songs charted on the Billboard Hot 100 with Flores hitting number 34. Onfrey, or Extension, was an artist who knew how to use social media really well, which was an up-and-coming thing at this time. He started a YouTube channel in 2015 and started releasing... Um, his music videos there uh, and he would talk about upcoming projects and he really connected with his fans and in 2018 he uh, started posting videos of the charity work he was doing to try and make amends for some of the things that he had done early in his life where he would uh, donate a bunch of musical equipment to like local schools and stuff like that as of this pod his YouTube channel has just shy of 40 million followers, and his content has received over 9 billion views. He had an Instagram account with over 21 uh, million followers. He's only made one post ever, and it has 31 million likes, which is like number 10 on the list of most likes ever in Instagram's history. On his YouTube channel, in March of 2018, he announced he was going to release his next album, and he dropped two songs. The first one, which was called Sad, went straight to number 17 right away and eventually peaked at number one after his eventual death. The song was about his remorse over who he'd been and the things he'd done. He was trying to talk about the new person he'd become. This album was more of an R&B pop punk album. However, it also had some reggae elements, alternative trap music, and even a little screamo. The dude's range was all over the place. The album that it was off of was just titled Question Mark. It debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200, and he signed a deal 
uh, for his third album with Empire Distribution with $10 million up front. It was a huge payout. However, in June of 2018, Humphrey was going to a motorcycle shop with the intention of buying a new motorcycle. He had $50,000 in cash in a bag with him he was going to use to buy the motorcycle. As he was pulling into the parking lot, a black SUV pulled in front of him. Two men jumped out and demanded the money. Humphrey fought back and was shot multiple times in the head and the neck. He died before he arrived at the hospital. Amazingly, he was only 20 years old at this time. He couldn't even legally drink. After his death, there have been a number of albums released and features that he had done um, were also pumped out. Even though he died at age 20, he sold an equivalent to 68 million albums worldwide, which that, that number just blows my mind. He, he may be a little underseated, if I'm honest, with how much this guy did before he could legally drink. Okay, on to our next four seeds. For our six seeds, uh, our first six seed contestant is Selena Quintanilla, who went by the sole name of Selena. She was often called the Mexican or Tejano Madonna because of the way she sang and the influence she had over fashion at the time in the 90s. She was born in Texas to Mexican-American parents. She was also partially Cherokee Native American. Her father was a musician who put her in a band with her siblings named Selena y Los Dinos. With, uh, her two siblings were named A.B. and Suzette Quintanilla. They did weddings, quinceañeras, festivals, and other shows all around Texas. Um, they did so well that her ex- education was getting in her way of being able to perform, so her dad pulled her out of school in eighth grade so she could tour. Interestingly, English was her first language. They spoke in English all around the house. Her father pushed her to sing in Spanish. Um, she had to learn how to speak and sing in Spanish phonetically, which if you listen to her songs, it doesn't sound like it. Um, but he had a, he was a musician, as I said, and had a massive influence over her and largely acted as her manager for her entire career. Um, in the eighties, she started to grow her profile in the Tejano music scene, winning her first Tejano music award for female musician of the year in 1987 which was an award she won for nine straight years after that. And the Tejano space is really music in Texas and Mexico. In 1981, she signed for EMI's music's uh, Latin music division. She released her first self-titled album that year and had a few low-level hits, outperform- but she outperformed any other female Tejano performer ever before her. The music genre was so dominated by men at this time that her success was incredibly unexpected. From here on, her brother A.B. became her most prominent producer and songwriter. In 1990, she published an album called Ven Conmigo, which included the song Baya Esta Cumbaya, which uh, was a massive Latin language hit. The song allowed her to tour Mexico. The album went gold soon after and has since gone triple platinum. In 2019, it was added to the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. In 91, a singer named Alvaro Torres approached her to sing a duet, and they recorded Buenos Amigos, which uh, the song then went to number one on the Latin charts, and it was her first number one hit. At this point, two significant things happened in her life. First, her dad hired a guitarist named Chris Perez into her band. And soon after joining, she and he began a romantic relationship, hiding it from her father. In 92, Perez and Selena eloped, 
because they didn't think her father would approve of their marriage. The media found out really quickly, and her father was not happy. He refused to accept it for a while, kicked him out of the band. Eventually, though, her father relented, accepted the marriage, let him back, and all things were great. Second, a woman named Yolanda Saldivar approached Selena about starting a fan club to really grow her fandom. Selena thought it was a great idea and allowed her to become the head of her fan club. She became a close family friend and confidant to Selena. So, from there, in 92, she put out her third album, Entre Amin Mundo, which is seen by many as her real breakout album. It contained some of her biggest hits, Como La Flor, Que Crisis, Crias, Crias, all right, La Carcacha, and the album was number one on the Mexican charts for eight months straight. It was the first Tejano album to sell more than 100,000 albums, 200,000 albums, and eventually 300,000 units. Overall, it ended up selling a million total copies, which obviously set the record, which is massive for a Latin artist. In 93, she recorded and released an album called Selena Live, which was a lot of her best songs, and it contained three songs she hadn't recorded before, No Debe Sugar and La La Manda, which reached the top five on the Latin charts and won uh, the Grammy for Best Mexican-American Album. This all built towards her crowning achievement album, the album Amor Prohibido in 1994. The album topped the Latin charts for almost a year. It was the second Tejano album ever to sell over 500,000 albums. In 2017, NPR said the album was number 19 on their list of the top 150 albums ever made by a woman. Amor Prohibido, Bibi Bibi Bum Bum, Fotos y Recuadras, all charted to top five on the Latin charts. Um, and this album really finally convinced the record executives that she was big enough to try crossing over into English music, which she had been told no up to this point. In 1994, she'd started manufacturing her own line of clothing and opened a number of boutiques throughout Texas and Mexico. She was really seen as a fashion icon. As I said, she was the, the Mexican Madonna, right? Everybody wanted to look like her and her clothes sold like hotcakes. She put the leader of her fan club, Yolanda Salvador, in charge of the boutique business because she had been so impressed with how she ran the fan club. However, in 94, employees started to quit in large numbers. Sales began to suffer. Employees would complain that Salvador was a harsh boss. Her father started looking into it and thought there were regularities, uh, but Selena kind of dismissed it. In 95, her father started getting complaints from fans who said they had paid for a fan club membership but not gotten anything in return. He examined the books and found that Salvador had embezzled over 30K from their family. Selena went to confront her in a hotel in Corpus Christi. She demanded to see the books, but Salvador pulled a gun. When Selena turned to run, Salvador fired at her and chased her down the hall, striking her in the shoulder. Salvador attempted to run away, but she ended up in a nine-hour standoff with police before surrendering. Surrendering. Selena was taken to the hospital, and there were massive efforts to revive her, but the bullet had struck an artery, so she bled to death. She was only 23 at the time of her death. There was a movie made about her, her life only two years after her death, starring a little-known actress at that time named Jennifer Lopez. After her death, her English-speaking album Dreaming of You was released and debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200, 
I Could Fall in Love and three other songs charted into the top 10 in the US. She was the first Latin speaking artist to do all of this. Such an incredibly sad waste for a 23 year old to be gunned down in such a way. So her opponent is often called the King of Soul and he paved the way for so many soul artists that came after him. His name is Sam Cooke. Over his eight year career, he had 29 singles that charted in the top 40 and 20 which peaked into the top 10. He was a massive star in the 50s. uh, Cook was born in Mississippi in 1931 to a father that was a pastor. His family moved to Chicago when he was two. Um, He was six and his siblings and he started singing in a gospel music group that would uh, tour around. His career really started in earnest in 1950 when he joined a gospel group named the Soul Stirrers. The group only sang religious songs, many of which Cook wrote. Um, Christian music actually started to get popular um, on pop music at this point because of how big of a name Cook was becoming. His first pop song was called Lovable, which was a a secularized version of a Christian song called Wonderful. He released it using an alias of Dale Cook because there was such a stigma at the time of gospel singers singing anything that was secular. However, because his voice was so deep and defined, it fooled no one. And he was quickly uh, identified and embarked on a pop career. Interestingly, singer Little Richard was on the same label as Cook and was only born a year later. So it just kind of shows you the kind of career Cook might have had if he hadn't died so young. His major breakout happened in 1957 with the song You Send Me, which went to number one on the pop charts. After this, he was signed to RCA Records for the equivalent of a million dollars today. He put out songs Twistin' the Night Away and a number of other hits. He started his own record album in 1961, which was on the first record albums owned by a black artist. In 1964, his best-selling album Ain't That Good News was released, and this contained one of the greatest protest songs of all time called A Change Is Gonna Come. It became the anthem for the civil rights movement in the 60s. Cook was friends with Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and he made significant contributions to the civil rights movements, including this song. So I read a number of different versions around his death. I'm going to try and piece it together here, but this is kind of controversial, so bear with me. Um, There are a lot of stories around the night of his death. On the night of December 11th, 1964, Cook was staying at the Hacienda Hotel Motel in South Central L.A. According to the hotel manager, Bertha Franklin, he barged into her office naked, except for a sports coat and a sock, screaming, where's the girl? Franklin had no idea what he was talking about, asked him to leave, which just enraged him. He He was drunk. He tackled her. She fought free. She grabbed her gun and shot him in what she claims is self-defense. He kept coming, so she bashed him over the head with a broom. A woman named Elise Boyer said that she'd met him out for dinner. He'd offered to give her a ride home to her house. He was drunk, though, so he drove past her place to the hotel with the intentions of having sex with her. She said no, um, but he took her to the room, ripped off her clothes, and began to molest her. She was able to break free, stole all of his clothes, stole her clothes, went to the bathroom, and ran out out of the room. Cook started to chase her, and that's how he fatally ran into Franklin. His family and friends didn't buy it, 
supposedly his head was still barely attached to his body in the casket. All of his, both of his hands were broken and crushed. Um, and his face had been ma- badly mangled. There was suspicion of a robbery or a planned murder, but nothing was ever proven. Muhammad Ali once claimed that if this had been Frank Sinatra or one of the Beatles, the FBI would have been all over this investigating what had happened. Cook was only 33 when he passed away. Okay, for the two big ones, and this one kind of hurts for me. These are my childhood right here. I created this bracket and I'm furious with myself for these two. First, our, um, of our two five seeds, we have Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park is largely credited with creating and fueling the new metal genre of the early 2000s, even though they eventually evolved into a more melodic pop rock band by the end. They are one of the best selling hard rock bands ever. Bennington was born in the late 70s in Phoenix. And from 7 to 13, he was sexually molested by a family friend. He was too afraid to tell anyone, so he turned to writing poetry, songs, and he drew art. At age 11, his parents got divorced, which only piled more trauma onto this poor kid. His father got custody of him, and he started abusing alcohol, opium, cocaine, meth, LSD, all around 11 to 13. He was badly bullied in high school and got beat up all the time. So he moved to his mom's house where she forced him to go cold turkey on all the drugs and start over with a new life. And turn. And at this point, he turned toward music. In the mid-90s, he sang for a few bands that didn't do all that much in Phoenix. Around the same time in California, three high school friends, Mike Shinoda, Rob Bourbon, Burden, and Brad Delson, started a band called Zero. They recruited Joe Hahn and Dave Farrell, and recorded a demo. Record execs didn't like it at all. Um, however, as they were going through it, they met a guy named Jeff Blue, who was a talent scout, and he gave them the feedback that they needed a better singer. He introduced them to Bennington, and the group hit it off like they had been together forever. They changed the name of the band to Hybrid Theory, but then later also to Lincoln Park, which was named for a park in Santa Monica that they liked to go and hang out. In 2000, they released their first album named Hybrid Theory because that was the name of the band at first. Um, It's funny because I always tell this story about Linkin Park from my life. I went to college in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, I I was really into this style of music around this time. And I went to see a show. Can't remember the name of the other bands I was there to see. But one of the bands that we were there to see, I'd seen a bunch of times. I knew a few of the members and I was talking to them after the show and I said, hey, a great show and everything. And I said, what what, ha- what happened to the opening act? They said there was supposed to be an up-and-coming band that opened for them, but the band had gotten snowed in in Minneapolis, so they couldn't make it. They said, yeah, they're called Linkin Park. Have you heard of them? Um, they, they have a song that just got on the radio. At this point, Crawling uh, was their first single that had just started to get some radio play. I liked it a lot, and I was really bummed I didn't get to see them then. What a missed opportunity. Like, uh that first album hybrid theory crawling one step closer and in the end all became massive songs the album sold around five million copies making it one of the most successful debut albums of all time the album won a grammy for the best hard rock performance a year later they put out a remix of it called reanimation which included remixes of all the songs a few live versions some unreleased songs even the remix version sold over two million copies and it's cemented them as like rock stars at this point. It's one of the best-selling remix albums of all time. 
Their second album was called Meteora, which was released in 2003, and it debuted at number one. It sold 16 million copies. They had so many singles off of it that they were able to release material from it for over a year. Six of the 13 tracks on it were released as a single. Numb and Faint are probably the two biggest ones off the album. Numb has over 1.3 billion streams alone on Spotify. And if you actually include the remix, which was called Numb slash Encore, which was off of a, a album they did with Jay-Z um, called Collision Course, the song has over 2 billion streams between the two of them. This is a massive album, and it moved for them from just being a big rock band to the biggest band in the world in the 2000s. I know I personally wore out my CD of this and had to buy another one. From here, the band's sound continued to evolve. Their next albums were successful, but nothing sold like Meteora or Hybrid Theory. Minutes to Midnight had bangers, What I've Done, which has almost become a meme for early 2000s music. It, it's often on Instagram, just like mocking it. But it, it was a great song at the time. A number of the songs started to have a softer side. The song Shadow of the Day is a real example of how Bennington stepped forward as the main vocalist and they kind of moved away from the rapping side of things. Um, it also was starting to show his growing melancholy and his depression really peeking through. They released some more experimental albums called A Thousand Sons, Living Things, Recharged, and The Hunting Party. All of them sold pretty well and won some awards, but none of them were massive hits. In fact, I don't think there's a single, single, single on any of them worth really noting. In 2017, they announced their next album, which turned out to be their last. It was titled One More Light, with the first single from that album being named Heavy. It was the first song that they'd done that had a female lead vocalist on it, where they had the uh, singer named Kiara uh, work with them. It got significant radio play on pop and rock stations. And the lyrics really sounded like a call from help, for help for Bennington. The first line of the song is, I don't like my mind right now. Um, the, the first single with Bennington singing on it was also titled One More Light. And it's a tearjerker knowing what he was going through. There's a line in it that says, who cares if one more light goes out? Ugh. Just brutal. Bennington had a long battle with injury, drug addiction, depression, alcoholism, and other substances. He eventually kicked drugs, but turned to alcohol. In 2011, the band staged an intervention for him and got him clean of that as well. Because of his physical performance style, he suffered a number of injuries, which caused him to cancel shows and drive him to depression. In the mid-2000s, he'd become a really close personal friend of singer Chris Cornell, who had been the lead singer of Soundgarden and Audio Slave. Uh, Cornell was, uh, Bennington was the godfather of Cornell's son and they were incredibly close. In May of 2017, Cornell committed suicide at 52. Bennington didn't take it well at all. He said on Instagram that he couldn't survive in a world without Cornell in it. They had been supposed to perform the song, their new song Heavy on the Jimmy Kimmel show, but he changed it to One More Light in honor of his friend who had just died and he actually couldn't finish the song because he broke down crying on national TV. On July 20th of 2017, which was actually Chris Cornell's 53rd birthday, Bennington was found dead from suicide in his home. He'd hung himself. Um, he was only 41 years old. Lincoln Park had just been about to embark on a worldwide tour, which they canceled. 
the band has been on a hiatus ever since and hasn't announced any plans to reunite anytime soon. Okay, that's a tough one. However, his opponent is no slouch himself. Christopher Wallace, better known by his stage name, the Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, or simply Biggie. He became the face of an entire subgenre of rap, gangster rap. Um, He represented the entire East Coast rap scene and was a part of the biggest musical feud of all time, which actually is believed to have led to his death. Rolling Stone, Billboard, The Source, and almost every other magazine out there has called him one of, if not the greatest rapper of all time. This ba- this this place for the five seed is going to be a slugfest. You can only imagine what the top four look like. Wallace grew up in Brooklyn, New York, the son of Jamaican immigrants. His father left when he was two years old, and his mother worked two jobs to support him. He got actually pretty good grades, especially in English, for writing. Surprise, surprise, a rapper can write. Um, he started out being called Big Biggie at age 10 because he was always overweight. Around the same time, when he was 12, he started dealing drugs. He started rapping in street crews in high school, and in 1989, he dropped out of school at 17 to focus on dealing and rapping. The same year, he was arrested in Brooklyn for a weapons charge and was sentenced to probation. In 1990, he was arrested in North Carolina for dealing crack cocaine, which violated that probation. He did nine months in jail at age 19. After getting out of jail, he created a mixtape called Murder Microphone, calling himself Biggie Smalls. Funny enough, he didn't actually think that it was going to go anywhere. He just was doing it for fun. However, the mixtape got into the hands of a local DJ, which got him attention. From there, the Source magazine featured him in the unsigned hype section of the magazine, and that got the attention of Sean Puff Daddy Combs, who was just starting out in the business as a talent scout. Combs was soon fired from Uptown, went out and started his own label, and immediately signed Biggie. He learned that the name Biggie Smalls was taken by another rapper, and he made his first appearance on um, Puff Daddy's label, bad boy records as notorious big and then he he was on two mary j blige remakes at the time and in 1994 he appeared on a remix with ll cool j buster rhymes and craig mack called flava in your ear which actually charted up to number nine around this time he met another rapper from the west coast named tupac shakur they became really good friends and would often hang out when either either one of them was in the same city. They both were very similar in how they'd come up, their styles, and they always would talk about their previous criminal activities uh, because they had such a similar background. In 94 was when Biggie really started to blow up. He married R&B artist Faith Evans eight days after meeting her at a photo shoot. Five days later, he had his first major hit with the song Juicy, And then he released his album, Ready to Die, which had the pre-mentioned Juicy, but also the song Big Papa. Big Papa was his biggest hit at the time. It went to number one on the Hot 100. The album went to number 13 on the Hot 200 list and ended up selling over 4 million copies and really shifted the center of the rap world back to the East Coast. LA rap had been dominating the scene pretty much since NWA came out even though rap was invented on the East Coast. 
He collaborated with a number of people. He appeared in Michael Jackson's 1995 album, History. He did a song with Shaquille O'Neal back when Shaq was trying to rap. He created a group called Junior Mafia, which included a number of his childhood friends, including rappers Little Kim and Lil Crease. He featured on a few of their songs, and the album went to gold. He appeared on songs with the group 112 and Total, both of which peaked in the top 20 on the Billboard Hot 200. He was the biggest selling artist of 1995. He was on the cover of the Source magazine, which is kind of like his most notorious picture, um, calling him the king of hip hop and how he was taking over. At this time, the East West Coast rivalry within rap really started to kick off, largely driven by a rivalry between now former friends Wallace and Shakur. Tupac had been robbed while in New York in 94. He'd actually been shot five times during the robbery, and he believed that Wallace and Puff Daddy knew of the attack ahead of time because they had been acting kind of shady around him. But this really kicked off the rivalry. Tupac later went to jail for some other things, got out of jail, and immediately signed for Death Row Records, which was a big West Coast um, uh, record company, which was Bad Boy, which was Diddy's um, group. There were huge rivalries, and the two would just kind of go back and forth at each other. Um, Tupac wrote a song called Hit Him Up, saying Biggie had copied his musical style and that he had claimed that he had slept with his ex, his wife, Faith Evans. And Jay-Z's song, Brooklyn's Finest, uh, Biggie kind of responded back saying that's not true. In September of 1996, Tupac was actually shot and killed in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas. Wallace was a suspect, but was never arrested, never charged. He claimed he was in New York at the time, but he was really scared of retaliation. The East-West rivalry was really big at this time, and it was almost like a gang war. Um, And someone had just killed one of the biggest names in the West Coast, so he knew he'd be a target going forward. In March 8th of 1997, he attended the Soul Train Awards after party in L.A., It was a huge party. Fellow Dead Too Early contestant Aaliyah was there, but there were also a number of gang members there for both the Crips and the Bloods. The fire department shut the party down around midnight because it was overcrowding the space, so Biggie and his entourage jumped in three SUVs and left for his hotel. While stopped at a red stoplight, a Chevy Impala pulled up next to him, rolled down the window, and fired five shots into Wallace. The first shot killed him on the spot. He was only 24. He had just finished up an album that he was starting to promote called Life After Death. Um, It went right to number one on the Hot 200, eventually ended up going to Diamond. The songs Hypnotize and Mo Money Mo Problems both hit number one on the top uh, 100 charts. The music video for Hypnotize was released after his death, um, and it was the last thing he was featured on. This this video, you you'll know it if you see it. It's like him and Puff Daddy and Mace running around in like these really shiny suits. Um, Puff Daddy released an album called No Way Out that had five tracks that featured Biggie on it, but his death really left a massive hole in the rap music space, and it actually led to the end of the East West uh, rivalry. They had a summit with Louis Farrakhan, who negotiated a peace kind of between the two of them. Um, it's too bad it had to take down a couple of the biggest rappers of all time. Feels like I may be spoiling one of the other participants in this work, in this group down the line, but uh, you can't really talk about one of them without the other. 
So there you have it. This was a bit of a longer one. I just think there was a lot of intrigue with some of these people. So hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I honestly didn't know much about Mozart, but it's crazy how young he started to be able to play music like that. Extension seemed like he wasn't a great guy, but he was also so young, right? Like who hadn't made, I mean, I'm not out there beating people at 18 or 19, but he had been through some stuff. Uh, so it sounded like he was trying to redeem himself, but still super sad. I loved Lincoln Park, but I had no idea that Bennington's death was so closely tied to that of Chris Cornell. Make sure to get out there and call your friends and let them know you love them. So there you have it. It's time to vote. The vote will be open till uh, noon central time on August 10th. This is our last play in week. So one other thing I wanted to mention, I know we're coming up on the full bracket, but I am going to take next week off. I have a family trip Wednesday through Sunday, which is production time for the podcast. So I will be publishing the 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 actual full bracket reveal the week after, which is uh, the week of August 14th. So I'll publish it on August 17th. So just wanted to let you all know that it'll be a week later. Because this will be 16 participants and it'll be a two-hour podcast if I do what I've done on this one, I'm going to break it up a bit. Um, next week, we're going to be talking through the musical career of the artist only. Then the week after, we'll spend a little bit of time talking through their personal lights, and then we'll re- reveal the results and how they died. We won't talk much about the lower seeds because I've spent so much time talking about them, so we're really going to focus on the top four next week. That way we could break it up a little bit. I'm excited to get the full bracket out there. Um, for most of you who know the podcast, once we get the bracket released, we'll open up a pick'em bracket, kind of like the NCAA basketball tournament. If you're not familiar with that, what you'll do is you'll pick the winners of all the matchups all the way through the champions. Your predictions will be of who wins. It's different than the vote because you pick all the way through to the end. You get points for uh, right picks. You don't get any points for wrong picks. Um, you'll probably be wrong at some point just because there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on here. People will vote different than you think. Uh, it's just for fun, and it's able to bring a little bit of competition and kind of get some uh, skin in the game. The winner of the Pick'em will get a chance to come on the podcast with me next season if they want. So keep an eye out for that. The bracket will be only for Discord members, so be sure to sign up if you haven't already. Like always, I've included the link to vote, a link for Discord, a link for the songs that I talked about this week. And if you do like this episode, please give it a five stars, a thumbs up, whatever it is on your platform. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. Madness.